Hey guys, Danny here. So, yeah, just before we get into this um, this episode with Trish, I'm just letting you know this has been split into two episodes. Um, I try not to do any editing on my podcast, and I didn't want Trish to be any, any different with that. So, yeah, rather than cut something out which was really valuable, I've decided to split this into two episodes. Welcome to the Mind Gym Podcast. Hey Trish, welcome to the Mindship Podcast. How are we doing? I'm well, Danny. Thanks. How are you? I'm I'm wonderfully well. I'm wonderfully well. It's what half past eight in the evening. What time is it your end? Uh it's about two thirty in the afternoon. Oh, see, this is what I like about you, Trish. You're just committed to the cause. Just committed. I love it. <laughs> so, Trish, before we get in, I tend to ask my guests two questions. The first question is, I need you to pick four numbers from me, from one to a hundred, please. Uh, two, twenty-two, thirty-six, and ninety-four. Awesome. We will come back to them a little bit later on down the line. But yeah, I mean, as you probably as you probably know, Trish, tagline, logline. Um, the guests. I asked my guests to come prepared with one, and can you remember what yours is? Yeah, I, and you and I were having a conversation a little bit ago, and that is, um, I've actually known mine for quite a while. So mine is to equip and enable those who equip and enable others. Okay, okay. I like that. So so we, we, we kind of spoke, didn't we, I guess, with this this tagline. You said you've, you've had yours for a while, and you said you, you kind of, you, you, you give advice on how to do this. Yeah, so how, how do you approach that? Yeah. So one of the things that I talk about, so I, I spent a really long time where the focus of um, my professional life and really my my personal life was to help upskill L&D individuals and L&D teams. And so I've often done um, pre-conference workshops on how to prepare for conference. And I start off with purpose. I start off with, because, you know, we often take a look at professional goals without considering personal values. And so actually I start that workshop and I start those sessions off with, uh, you know, really kind of coming into some kind of an alignment with ourselves and what, and, and who we are and who do we want to become? And, and then how does the professional evolution become in service to the personal, to the, to the individual person? And the exercise that I do to help people come up with their sentence, if you will, uh, their log line, as you call it, is Dan Pink. So Dan Pink actually uh, has a little video that's available, of course, out on YouTube. It's about nine or 10 years old now. That's called What's Your Sentence? And it, it walks you through an exercise of, you know, essentially, if you're at the end of days, you know, what's the sentence that you would want people to remember you for? What do you want to be remembered for? Wow. What would they say about you? Yeah. Yeah. So, so... I mean, that would have helped many, many, many of my guests because whenever I, I get them on the podcast, it's always the log lines a hard question, mate. The log lines a hard one. So yeah, maybe mm-hmm. I'll, I'll keep that quiet, and then if I come around to doing a season three, I'll share that just to make it easier. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's kind of funny. Yeah, they could definitely go check out the video and and Dan's little process behind it, and and it is iterative. I mean, there's a you know, coming up with a succinct, you know, first of all, there's trying to figure out what it is. And then second of all, there's trying to language it, right? And I actually recently just changed mine because I I changed the word from 
the I used to say I equip and empower, and now I say equip and enable because um, recently I uh, I ran into somebody talking about the difference between those two things. So to so to empower somebody would mean that you somehow have power to bestow upon somebody else. And I'm like, well, that's not really what my intent is. I don't really have power to bestow upon somebody else. And so enable or enablement is a, is a, better, is a better term. So I've actually updated mine very, very recently. But yeah, they evolve over, the, the, I think the spirit of it stays the same, but the way that you language it and the way that you communicate it um, definitely can have different patterns and a different rhythm over time. Awesome. Awesome. I think I think one of the things which just jumps out straight away, just listening to you mention that is kind of how you're not fixed on that. And, and actually, you know, you've kind of tweaked it a little bit later on down the line. And I think we, we see that right. And a lot of a lot of our industries, they, they have this thing, this idea. And even when new evidence and new insight comes along, they still stick to that, that idea and that that opinion. And it sounds, and I think we'll probably we'll probably get into this a little bit later on down the line. But it's nice to hear, kind of, you know, from the outside is you've kind of tweaked it as and when. So that's that's really interesting. Yeah, and a, a lot of a lot of thoughts on that because I think a lot of what's happening around us as a species right now um, really speaks to fluidity, right, and and being able to figure out ways of not being so deeply associated with any particular identity in any number of forms. And so, so, and that can have a lot of meaning in a lot of context and it, and it does, and we can, we can dive into any of those things, but I think um, learning those skills of that kind of adaptability um, and being able to jettison the things that no longer serve when they no longer serve and keep the things that, you know, still serve us in some way and being able to take them with us as we go through our own transformations, um, I think is important. I think that's one of the critical skills for us to have as, as people nowadays. I just, I find it interesting kind of, you know, it's this, this kind of, I, I get it. Some people kind of have an opinion and they've made a name of an opinion and, for him to kind of go back on that opinion could do their brand disservice. Where actually, I think it could do their brand a, a better service. But it's interesting, you know, we're adults, right? We're, we're grown ups, and we go, "This is my mindset. This is my way of thinking right now." Until new information or new insight comes along, that's probably how it's going to be. And then when the new insight comes in or the new information, I'll look at that information, I'll look at that insight, and then I'll assess and I'll I'll make my decision or my opinion from that point. Do I need to tweak it? Do I need to change it? Or actually, does it, is it does it still stand? But I think it's interesting how even as adults, grown-ups, if you like, um, we're still a little bit scared to do that, I find. Or some people in the industry. And the industry, not just being L&D, I think you see that in all industries. Well, I, it goes into identity, right? It goes into... Um, and part of that is biologically wired, right? So if we think about how the brain processes and that, you know, really spending too much brain power takes up an awful lot of energy and an awful lot of effort. And so if we're spending, you know, so we need shorthands, we need a way of being able to say, okay, I am this and not that. Um, there's also uh, evolution and um security, right? That's baked into being human. So we have to be able to identify who's with us and, you know, who's for us and who's against us 
you know, that, that goes back to, um, you know, that, that goes back to all sorts of, you know, primal versions, but also modern versions of us, right? How do we distinguish um, friend from foe? And so we, we need that in having an identity. And an identity is not only our professional identity, uh, but it's also the identity of the different roles that we have in our, in our lives. So, um, you know, for me, it's sister, daughter, aunt, uh, friend, um, you know, uh, and then getting into the, the professional identity, because when we assume a professional identity, then everything's there for us. You know, if I consider myself X, whatever X is, there's a way that I dress, there's a way that I speak, there's a lexicon that we use, there's a way that I behave, there are social norms to, you know, to associate with, there's a, there are um, ways of conduct. And, and we do that too as nations, we do that as sports fans, we do that, you know, there's there sort of this um, mantle or this kit of things that we can then uh, use because it sort of defines what being or associating to that crowd, to that role, to that identity, you know, really is. And and letting go of identity is a is a very very can be a very very difficult can be a very difficult process. Well, I just think I mean one of the things which I kind of got thinking about then was actually why why do you think you know, I think we we see it a lot is we have two identities. We have this personal and professional one. And and one of the things which I've always tried to do as much as I possibly can is make them one thing, not two things, because I think that's the only way we can be our authentic self. We shouldn't have to do this thing of this is personal, Dan, and this is professional, Dan. It, it should be the same thing. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's the scales within that, but I think having this kind of professional this professional head and then this personal head. I think, I think by by having two separate things, we we lose a lot of our identity within a business because of that. Well, yes, and we so we trade our or we have in the Western world, right? At least it's it's not true of all cultures, but in the Western world, we certainly have been conditioned. Um, and I'm using that word very deliberately, but we've been conditioned by our environment and society and people around us and cultures within the organizations that we serve um, at a certain point in our careers. I, I think to your point, it's it's changing a lot now. There's a lot more acceptance of people bringing their whole selves uh, to work. And there's a number of reasons for that. But part of the reason why we were we were culturally raised and conditioned um, in the way that you're describing, Danny, is that it served specific management practices. I mean, literally served specific management practices that were um, that served a, a particular, you know, period in organizational life. So what I mean by that is like, you know, here in the United States, um, you know, we we came up with a management practice back in the 1970s, 1980s, which made it where people really are in an organization expendable. But that's a that's a construct. That's a that's a management practice that we as humans created. What I like about that is that we can identify those types of theories and those types of constructs, and we can decide if we want to again, does it still serve? Do we want to keep it? Or does it no longer serve? Does it, you know, is it is it helping or hindering us? And if it's 
if it no longer serves, then how do we, you know, we created it as a construct, we can create new constructs. And we're, we're being forced now around the world um, to create new constructs for a number of different reasons. But, but those, you know, that's just a, that's a management practice and that served an old organizational design, which literally was called and is continues to be called bureaucracy. You know, so you had, you needed that kind of conformity and you needed that kind of uniformity um, coming into an organization that was set up to have command and control. And you had some people that, you know, had access to resource and access, you know, and resource could be money and information and connection and network. And you had people um, who were not connected, who were, who were essentially rendered powerless within the organization. And they're traditionally in Western organizations and industrial organizations, those bureaucratic models, that's how they operated was on that delineation of the haves and the have nots. And so you can't have people who show up to work and have an identity and a sense of self that are then going to, you know, conform to that particular model. And we can see that too, like going back into the going back into the literature. I mean, think about, you know, think about the books, think about 1984 and Animal Farm. And one of my very favorite movies is um Tom Hanks in Joe versus the volcano. You ever seen that? I I I've seen it. I, I mean, to ask me to remember it, I wouldn't be able to, but I know I've seen it. I know I have seen it. But but why is it your favorite one? It's uh, actually it's funny. There there are it's it's one of my favorites, and one of my other favorites is actually Fight Club. Oh, yes. And and oddly enough, for similar reasons. And um, so at the at the beginning of Joe versus the volcano, so Tom Hanks plays, you know, a character that uh, you know the drudgery of work, right? Going into a factory job, into a, a sterile. Um, bland uh, office environment and and the whole production the way that the the movie the the whole feeling of the movie and the whole aesthetic of the movie when it opens is all black and white it's kind of like the beginning of you know it's sort of similar to the beginning of like the wizard of oz like everything is very drab everything is in you know blacks and grays and it's very dreary and gloomy and you know those types of things and then as the story advances and as he advances the imagery both in terms of technicolor and in terms of the visuals that are introduced in other parts of the movie become brighter and brighter and brighter you know there's more and more color that's introduced and so you're you're watching the evolution of this individual person joe who um you know as we're often good at as human beings you know is facing his mortality and that accelerates or or becomes a catalyst in his life for this process of, you know, really reevaluating, you know, who he is and what he's doing and, and why it is that he's that he's investing or spending this, you know, precious thing that we refer to as life in this particular way and really not only questions that, but rebels, you know, rebels against it. And I think at the heart of it, that's one of the things that I love about Fight Club too, is because it's the same sort of thing. There's this conformity, there's this social norm. There's one of my favorite scenes is, you know, Ed Norton sitting on the, on the bathroom floor, like ordering towels from the Ikea, you know, catalog. 
um, because it it it's such a it's such a norm. It's it's such a an expectation at that time of the movie. You know, his social crowd and his professional crowd and his professional status for who he was again identity and the type of work that he was doing. That's what you did. That's how you spent your discretionary cash. Was you would you know, color match your bathroom is such a, such a commentary on society and work and, and identity and rebellion. It's such, I mean, you know, I can't remember John Volcano, but Fight Club is one of my favorite films also. Um, so yeah, I can, I can completely relate to the, the Fight Club reference. Definitely. So, so well, what makes Fight Club go on, sorry? special to you? What makes Fight Club special to you? Um, so I guess for me, I like the, you know, for me, it's it's the the, the the narrative, I guess, of the story, and and kind of, it's a bit like, the it's probably the same reason of why one of the reasons why I like Sixth Sense on the fact of you have the aha moment, and then you you kind of in that moment very very quickly reverse engineer the story, and you go ah okay that all makes sense now, um and and yeah I think it I see Fight Club as that kind of angel and devil kind of on each shoulder um while we know you know it's the the same person but it's kind of like you know it is the the altar you know it's a complete reverse of what ed norton is and it's everything what ed norton is in real life it's that that kind of alter ego um but yeah i I like fight club for for that reason mainly um it's also got two of my favorite actors in it ed norton and, and brad pitt um didn't rate meatloaf too well in that um but yeah, kind of. It's just it's just a, an all around good film. I know many people who don't like it, um, and then my challenge is actually: have you? Do you not like the film, or is it the fact of you don't get the film? Because I think they're two separate things. So yeah, it's um, it's a it's a great it's a great great film a great film. And I think at some point I was reading, and I'm, I may be wrong here, but wasn't this um a book first? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I haven't read the I've never read the book or um, in my understanding. And I I can't I want to say the author's first name is Charlie or Chuck or something along those lines. I'm sure people listening are going to know the author's name right away. But apparently his other books are sort of in a um, constructed in a similar way, not necessarily the same themes, but that same sort of there's like an, to your point, there's kind of an imbalance there, right? Like what's true, what's fact and what's fiction, you know, at the end of the day, which person is he, which is he more, which is the daydream, you know, which is the daydream and which is the fantasy and which is, you know, the reality and doesn't matter. But um, yeah, there's all sorts of themes in there. And my understanding in, in some of his other work as well, that I think is intended to make people uncomfortable. And that's where I find that some people, especially women who they don't like the film because there's a, there's a violence, you know, some of them will say the violence to it. And, and there are all sorts of rabbit holes in this conversation, but, um, but I think it's the, the violence, not just the physical violence of the notion of fight club and the, and the men literally coming to, to, to blows but I think there's the violence of the rendering apart, right? So, so to your point, things are not as they seem. You get to the end of the movie and then you have to reconsider all of the evidence, if you will, everything that you've experienced up until that point, because once the narrative shifts, it brings into question, it calls into question everything that came before. And that's not, 
that's not always a comfortable place to be. Yeah, I think there's a couple of films which I like to Fight Club, and, and I say similar, but by being similar, they're completely different as well. Um, you know, Fight Club is 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 a film all to itself, um, and and kind of when, whenever someone says what's his top three films, I always go back to Fight Club, Stand by Me, um, and and then there's a film called Choke. Have you ever have you ever watched that film? No. Uh-uh. So, yeah, Choke's about um, a sex addict in a nutshell, and and it's kind of it's, it's some people love it, some people hate it. Um, it's Sam Rockwell. Um, but yeah, it's kind of very, not very similar, sorry, but it's still it's got like the, the 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 torment what Fight Club has to it, like you know this this blaséness, this just mulling through kind of story to it. So I kind of like Chuck for that reason as much as I like Fight Club, I guess. But yeah, I didn't I didn't expect to talk about movies, but yeah, thanks <laughs> actually. Well, it's interesting because it, well, it goes back to, it goes back to what you brought up and that is why is there sort of this resistance to, to change and why is there a resistance to our sense of, our sense of purpose sometimes and our sense of self and the way that we, the narratives that we create about ourselves and that we create about others and about what we do. Why, why is there a resistance there? And I think you know, if we rounded out one of my other favorite movies in this, as much as Fight Club, you know, again, like kind of renders or or deconstructs or or takes something apart and makes you question, I think the way that you stay resilient when you're faced with that, um, when you're, you know, when you have to learn how to get comfortable and uncomfortable places and 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 having to question your own identity or question your own practices or question the way that you've always done things or your worldview or your perspective on something because you're you're there's some kind of cataclysmic event or person or you know something happens that forces you to to reevaluate on the you know sort of the the other end of the pendulum um, one of my other favorite movies is Monty Python and the Holy Grail and the reason why I equate it is there's an absurdity and a silliness and a um, and a and a an allowing of the absurd. And I think that that's also part of what goes into any form of resilience. And I think you have to be resilient in order to navigate those kind of scorched earth kind of moments is, you know, in those moments, what is absolutely true for you, right? So what what goes back to being your log line? What goes back to your purpose? What goes back to your sentence? What goes back to kind of your North Star? Um, and then how do you how do you sort of surrender to it? How do you sort of allow whatever conditions are galvanizing you at that particular time that you find yourself in that crucible? How do you remain kind of, you know, flexible and not and not take it so hard or not take it so rigidly or not take it so seriously. And I, you know, Python has, I, you know, first time I watched Monty Python, Holy Grail, um, the movie. Now, before that, it was uh, Flying Circus and so on and so forth. But the first time I saw Holy Grail, the movie was on my 16th birthday. And this year I just turned 50. And it is my go-to movie to this day. It doesn't matter how 
bad or serious or conditions in life can get, the, the thing that can give me some respite or some hope is that is that particular movie. And it has been like that for these many different decades and phases of my life, which is kind of interesting. Wow. So it's kind of kind of building on this kind of identity then. When when you was in school and the teacher would say, Trish, what do you want to be when you grow up? What what would you say when you was in school? If that question ever got posed was you? Well, it was funny. There was um, disappointment really early. So I'm rather tall. Um, so I'm six feet. Uh, I'm six feet and I've been this height since I've uh, been cl- pretty close to this height since I was 10 years old. Um, and that's really tough when you want to be a jockey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so when you want to do flat racing and you think you're going to have this life with horses and you're going to be a jockey. And by the time you're 10 years old, you're already, you know, well, well over the the height differential. But there's a funny story there because actually that in part got me into um, got me into steeplechasing and then got me into reading Dick Francis and and got me into thinking about okay, well you can be very tall and still ride horses and jump over things and race and compete. And I was like, okay, well there's there's kind of hope for the future. But um, but I grew up with uh, school teachers all around me. Um, most of my uh, family, uh, men and women, in some shape or form, taught in. I grew up in New York, actually, and um, they're all uh, school teachers are taught in some kind of way. My father's a little bit different, but he also, at the end of the day, uh, became a teacher of sorts. Um, but I always wanted to. I always wanted to teach. I always. I knew that from a very young age. Okay. Okay, so, so kind of, I guess it, it's kind of just come across me, you know, some of my, some of our listeners might not know who you are, and, and I'm assuming most will, but actually, is it possible for you to give us a bit of a whistle-stop tour of kind of where you've come from, all the way up to kind of where you are now and the stuff what you're doing right now? Sure. Um, so the very brief kind of whistle-stop tour is um i actually started out i i did actually start out a career with horses i was paid to ride and compete horses although not race them uh and so i was a paid athlete for a while and my original um focus of my undergraduate work was uh equestrian studies and communications and i had Later on in life, um, you know, in those ages at university age, I had ambition, uh, and this was in the late 1980s, so this was not done at the time, but I had ambition for it, and that was I wanted to um, travel the world and cover equestrian events. I wanted to be a journalist and cover equestrian events, and uh, it it didn't quite work out that way professionally, although there have been some interesting um, moments in time, like uh, I've, I've been to a number of, um, the Olympic trials for the United States equestrian team and have gotten like my Twitter feed has gotten picked up by, you know, different media outlets and stuff like that. So I'll take screenshots and send it to my dad and be like, look, it all worked out. Okay. In the end, <laughs> um, you know, cause that's what every father wants to hear from his teenage daughters that she's going to go off and study equestrian studies and communication and be an equine journalist that, that just warmed his heart. Um, <laughs> And then, uh, and then basically what happened was, uh, it was again, late eighties, early nineties. And I had a car accident, which ended that career at that time. And I wound up having to, um, figure out things pretty quickly. I couldn't, 
physically, you know, so making work through labor or making a living through labor, I, I couldn't um, do that at that time anymore. And so one of the other talents that I had was computers. And if you think about it, so 1989, um, computers were not really a, a thing yet. We had, you know, there were some computers at home. They hadn't really come into the office space. They were starting to come into the office space. I mean, really computers at that time, it wasn't personal computers. It was still, you know, mainframes and, you know, basically computers that took up entire buildings and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I always had a knack for it because of um, friends of mine whom I grew up with out on the East Coast. And we gamed and we programmed and we did all sorts of things that were um, unpopular in the 1980s, but paid <laughs> us very handsomely starting in the 1990s. And so I uh, wound up becoming a software trainer. Um, and that was really what started me in corporate training. So up until that point, the uh, experience that I had had with sort of this mission of, of teaching, um, I had, I had uh, two kind of um, uh, major uh, qualifications, I guess, at that particular point. One was Again, coming from a family of teachers, when um, when I was a kid, I was raised Lutheran by my grandmother, and she used to be the woman who babysat like all the other kids in the neighborhood. So everybody that I went to elementary school was coming back to my house with me because my grandmother was going to basically watch them until their parents, you know, got off of work and came and picked them up. And so my sister and I used to actually take milk crates out into the backyard, and we would they would the kids would have to go to school again because we wanted to teach that was our idea of play was that we would want to teach and so we'd have the kids sitting out in the backyard in these milk crates and the only curriculum that we had to teach was what we learned in Sunday school so we would you know it wasn't because we were particularly religious but that was the only content that we had so we would make these poor kids that probably can still remember that and regret it. And they're probably telling somebody else in some <laughs> podcast somewhere about this experience in New York. So that was one qualification that I had getting into corporate training. And the second qualification that I had getting into corporate training was um, I was actually a British Horse Society instructor. So uh, when I was, I, I've ridden and I've uh, competed in many disciplines in the world of horses but um, at that time, one of the big ones that I had done was um, three-phase eventing, which is stadium jumping, uh, cross-country, you know, so basically flying through the woods at a gallop and jumping over strange objects on a, on a thousand-pound horse, um, and then dressage. And so a lot of my experience at that point was standing in the middle of a riding ring with um, very skittish animals and very green riders and teaching them basically how to orchestrate that and put that together, which I found in corporate training in the 1990s and especially with computers coming into the office and training people on software um, and people who did not want to touch computers and did not want to learn software, that there were really a lot of parallels there. You know, it was really no different than standing in a dirty ring and trying to get, you know, not trampled and actually try and make a difference and provide people with some kind of value. So, and that really hasn't changed. Um, and that's really where everything began. So, uh, and from there I've gone into um, uh, all sorts of things in the corporate training and the learning and performance and the spectrum of workplace learning and performance. Uh, but it, it started out with that 
path for me, not through HR, but through information technology, through IT. So most of my work has actually been, um, and most of my reporting lines when I have been internal to organizations and even as a consultant, I've been brought in through the IT organization rather than necessarily through the HR organization, which has been uh, different moving in this space. So, so kind of, and I guess, you know, you've had some clients where you have been brought in, I'm making the assumption here, but that you've had clients where you have been brought in through kind of a HR channel. And, and I guess one of the questions which just kind of jumps to mind now is, how does that, how do them two experiences match and actually differ? Because, you know, sometimes coming in via the HR channel, I, I should imagine, and speaking to kind of, you know, past vendors, it can be a bit of a nightmare, but... Am I, am I making an assumption that, you know, coming via the IT channel is different or is it just is that same? It's just, you know, it's all within the same corp, I guess, and the, the same the same business. Yeah, um, it's different. It's uh, it could be radically different. Um, so I've had more experience working in parallel with people in HR than necessarily reporting up through HR. And the, and the times that I would have reported in through HR as a consultant, it would have been through a, a, a non-traditional, unconventional, I would say a progressive leader. It, it wouldn't be through, I think, what people would historically think of as the, as the HR function. I've worked with a lot of people in what I think of as um, HR, in my mind, what's traditionally HR. I've worked in parallel with a lot of folks, of course, have had an interface with that function, but I've never been brought in through a function that operated in that way. And, and the reason why I make that distinction is, you know, it's really kind of funny with things that are happening right now. Um, and one of the organizations that I've, I've actually been involved with because I, I love their mission and I, I really enjoy their founder and I really love the community um, is hacking HR. But when I think of traditional HR um, and especially being the age that I am and, and coming up um, and into the workforce at the time that I did, you know, there's kind of this saying that's going on right now, Danny, about, you know, don't forget the H you know, don't forget the human in HR. And I'm like, human was never part of HR. It was, <laughs> was never, no, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny, but that was, that was not, you know, HR evolved from the personnel department. The personnel department was there to staff warm bodies. HR, human resources is there to treat people as any other resource. Like that was always the remit of HR. HR was never about advocating on behalf of the people that that's not, what HR started at now, now what that field of practice wants to become and, and who they want to be now and, and what they want to call themselves. That's an entirely different ballgame. But, but human resources was never about the humans. It was about the organizational need for humans and being able to manage humans um, in a compliance framework, just like any other resource. Yeah, I think I mean I, I haven't came I haven't come across um hacking HR and and I'll definitely put that on my list to kind of have a look after this. I think the HR kind of, of, of what it what it is and what it isn't and what it's trying to be. I think one company what really stands out to me at the moment is a company called I think they're called iTech Media. 
um, London-based company, um, and actually the head of people was, we had some discussions about potential you know, opportunities there and whether it's right for me and whatnot. Um, and fundamentally, I couldn't go because I'm based up north and the role was based down south. That's what it came down to. But how they're approaching HR is very, very different. And I think it's exciting how they're approaching it because they're approaching it from a very analytical point of view, a very kind of, I mean, yeah, it's, it's more analytical, more kind of iterations and, 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 and looking at it completely from a different angle to kind of what HR is about. I mean, don't get me wrong. We still have this human touch, if you like, but their take on, on it, it, you know, on paper, it it looks like an absolute breath of fresh air. Um, but I think I think you know when we talk about uh, I talk about L and D having a bit of an identity crisis. I think I think HR has an identity crisis. I think they're a little bit further on in that journey of what they want to become rather than what they are. Um, but yeah, I think it's interest it's an interesting that you bring up kind of the human in HR for sure. Well, and it comes back to identity again too, right? I mean, so again, there's a and and this is true of you know any group that we associate with and again this is this is part of how we're we're wired just you know part of how we're wired is a species <laughs> like and there are you know again evolutionary and, and and biological reasons for that but um you know it's interesting to me because when we look at what's in a name i think names are really very important um, names are very important for a number of different reasons, but one of them is they convey what the purpose or what the focus of a particular um, entity is. So to give you an example, so going back to being in information technology back in the 1990s when, you know, <laughs> IT was, you know, there was no, there weren't any IT departments in an organization. IT was like, you know, the guy, usually the male who could take a computer out of a box and set it up, turn it on and show somebody how to, you know, basically turn it on and turn it off. And, and maybe more than that, you know, after that, that was IT. Um, and IT started out as information technology. It started out with being in charge of the care and feeding, if you will, of the actual equipment, of the actual machinery. So, you know, setting up servers, setting up personal computers, later on setting up unified phone systems, you know, actually being in charge of the technology. And then we started having this new thing that emerged that was called information systems. And information systems and information services is an entirely different thing. Although we wound up at a point, you know, sort of interchanging or using synonymously IT and IS. But IT was always about the care and feeding of the machines. And IS was all about the services that you could provide based on that enterprise architecture, right? So even before the machines, that you know, information technology became part of the fabric of how any organization operates. Um, you know, there was again this role of the people that could um, basically set the you know order the machines, set the machines up, figure out how to connect the machines together, do those types of things. But if you wanted to actually derive some kind of value out of it, if you wanted to figure out strategically how to leverage those assets to provide some kind of a service 
and provide value to the organization, that became an entirely different practice. And I think we're, we're going through that or, and have been going through that on the people side for a really long time. And that's another part that I've been a part of. So, so I came up in the IT function and I've, I worked for Xerox also in the 1990s and I've been a straight up IT person and a straight up IT uh, professional. Um, and then in parallel, I've also had this work on the learning side. So actually even in the 1990s and I mean, my first e-learning project that I worked on was in 1997. Um, so that's, you know, way back in the day when we were still trying to figure out what the World Wide Web was and what an internet browser was, because we just got what? Uh, World Wide Web in 1993. We got email, came into the workforce in the United States here in 1995. So I mean, all of this was, you know, the wild, wild west. But, um, but I was part of the team that grew the first um, distance education function for Xerox um, uh, globally at that time. And at, this, at the time, we didn't have enough work to just you know, kind of focus on what eventually became the, you know, the workplace learning function. So I served as both an IT resource and then also in this, you know, this emerging profession of um, e-learning and, um, and learning and performance. But that transition, right, from your traditional training department, which was all about the creation of things, the creation of assets, to learning and performance, which became more about providing value through service. I mean, there really is a distinction between those two things. So I those are two different remits or two different focal points within an organization. And I think it's important, you know, the same thing with HR, you traditional human resources, are you human capital, are you people development, like the name um, should have alignment with what the remit of that particular entity is supposed to be. So I, th I think it's interesting that we use kind of words to, to, you know, words for association. And, and actually, it's kind of got me thinking, what I'd like to do with you, Trish, if that's all right, is I want to throw some words at you. And I want you to tell me what comes to mind, just initial gut feeling, boom, what comes to mind? Okay. So the first word is digital. Bitcoin. Okay. Next one is data analytics. Insight. Okay. The next one is AI. Now. And the last one is blockchain. Society. Cool. Okay. So, <laughs> so yeah, like I, I've got a whole list of questions what I want to jump into, but I want to get into these first. So, you know, we, we spoke on Twitter in the past and we kind of, I think, I think the very first thing I ever sent to you was my drawing of kind of invisible learning in 2014. And on there, I think we, it was in the, it was in a conversation you was on about 5G and stuff. But for me, I think, you know, invisible learning is an environmental thing it's not a one thing it's it's the environment it's a physical environment and and the modalities and the the tech and everything what's encompassed within that environment that physical space but let's get into kind of learning and the, and the future of it and and kind of where you know i know you're you you've been a big um big backer of 5g and you kind of said you know this is going to be the biggest thing because of the hyper hyper connectivity and stuff but where what do you think the future of L and D and and using that term to kind of just wrap up people development? Where do where do you see the future of 
of, of, of L&D going? Well, I would start with more of a, a macro or meta context, um, because in order to have an understanding of where L&D is and where it's going, we have to understand it in context of where the world of workplace, you know, that, that workplace learning is involved in, right? So organizations, where are organizations going? Um, so this goes back to constructs and organizational design. So, so the, the first thing is from, a, from an org design standpoint, right? We're moving from command and control in these very bureaucratic um, organizations. And I, and I don't mean bureaucratic in the way that we use like, you know, bureaucracy in the way that we sort of in a cavalier way, like use the term. I mean, the actual term bureaucratic as in an actual documented way to design an organization. Um, so we're moving from a bureaucratic org design to network and nodes, right? Um, so this is where we've got the agility of teams, where things are flattening out. We don't have functions. Um, and that's really, really tough, um, not only for what we think of as traditional functions within an organization, but certainly functions within L&D. And this is where we, we wind up where things are getting really kind of messy because we don't know what to call ourselves anymore, both in terms of a function or a department, but we also don't know what to call roles anymore because the problem is they're, they're being deconstructed. They're going away. It's not about associating with a role, which is tied to a function, which practices these specific things. All of that is flattening out. All of that is becoming fluid. And that that's part of the, the difficulty of this um, transition. And so as the organizations become um, more and more, you know, again, these nodes and networks of these interconnected teams that kind of come together and kind of fall apart. And I, I love the idea of this. Um, so Lou Russell, who's very popular around the world and is uh, based here in the United States out of Indianapolis. And she's got a background um, for a long, long, long time in project management, especially project management within L&D. And what Lou says is basically projects and project teams are kind of like a flash mob, right? Like we all mm. kind of get together with a common purpose, you know, in mind and something exciting happens and it either works or it doesn't or it fails miserably or somewhere in between and everybody disbands and goes on to the next thing. And that's really kind of the the chaos and the ecosystems that you know our organizations are rapidly becoming. There's this there's this deconstruction of industrial age constructs and these bureaucratic mechanistic organizations um, that's happening all around us and and happening to us. I mean we're we're a part of the system and we're of course influenced by the by the system. So. There's that happening. And so there's a lot of role confusion because roles, the, the rigidity by which we used to be able to define a role or function is dissolving. Um, so that also means that the way then we support an organization is dissolving because now it's it's no longer clear cut, right? So if the organization operates like this and has these functional areas, and these business units, and we're in this market doing these things, and here's how we provide value to, you know, as an organization to our customer, and here's our mission and our vision and our, 
and our values and here are our strategic objectives and you know getting the workforce to move in the direction of being able to execute against those strategic objectives we don't have those clear lines anymore um and 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 again it's rapidly um it's rapidly falling apart in in sort of the best of ways so as that deconstruction continues to happen we're trying to figure out who we are as a function what value we provide as a function and then how do we iterate how do we evolve in a way to be able to then support that and that goes into um again, our identity, what do we associate with, right? So what, what value are we trying to serve? And what do we need in order to do that? And that's going to then be this composite of skills on different teams that are going to come together in L&D and they're going to fall apart in L&D. And that also has to do with the, um, our ways of working. It also has to do with our technologies and our practices and our toolkits. So we're in this huge inflection point at the moment of it's no longer about the value that we provide is no longer about the things that we output, the things that we create. It's about the outcomes. It's about the value. It's about the things and the results that we provide. And that's, again, going back to this word of, of fluid. And the only way to be able to do that is to be able to constantly listen. And the only way to be able to constantly listen so that we can constantly so that we can constantly respond is through data, is getting better with data. We have to. So so kind of I'd love to, to know your take on this. So recently I did a, a post on LinkedIn and I was saying L and D's, you know, if L and D was a person within the business. Would we have performance managed amount now? Would we or not? And and actually, I said I was kind of the crazy. Me says, L and D as we know it now isn't needed, and I think actually the L and D team, the new L and D team, let's use that term just to to make it easy for conversation. But I think you know you've got people, you've got service designers, you've got experience designers, you've got you've got marketing, you've got comms. They, if them to figure out to talk across the table to each other, then, you know, and then I start kind of piecing all these other parts of different industries. And I think actually something like, you know, design thinking, for example, that's not new to product service, uh, product design. It's not, it's not new to them at all. And actually, if we ask someone like from a service design or a system thinking background to design the potential next onboarding of a first initial phase of say an employee lifecycle, I think you'll get a better result than what you would do if you asked the L and D function. But am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. And if you there's actually a cycle for this, but we just haven't connected it. And it's one of the things that I talk about in some of the presentations that I do. And it's um it's Peter Diamandis's um sixties, right? So there's actually a progression and it starts out with digitization. And then once something, once an asset, once something becomes digital, once a thing becomes, goes from the physical to the digital, um, then it begins to dematerialize. And once something begins to dematerialize, it, it disappears from its current form into a new form. It usually gets absorbed into something else. And then once it gets absorbed into something else, then the next phase after that is demonetization. And demonetization 
means the money comes out of it, right? Because it no longer provides value in its physical form. You don't need it anymore because whatever value it offered when it was a standalone thing, it now offers that value through the combination of it being part of something else. And in all of that becomes disintermediation. So disintermediation is when we remove the middleman. It's when um, the the gatekeeper, if you will, comes out. So, so I would say that in that chain so far, in those four different early phases of 6D, that's exactly where L&D is, right? So we're, we're going through digitization as so many other things are. And it started with things like, you know, CBT and e-learning and those kinds of things, but now it's accelerating. And now we're truly becoming a digital um, asset. And that's where blockchain and some of this other emerging tech um, really comes in, which um, we can get into more later, but I'm going to table for now. But disintermediation, we're being removed from the middle, right? So to your point, Danny, there's, there's peers that I have that are longtime learning leaders that are like, you know, there are some aspects of what falls into the remit of an L&D department that really belongs somewhere else in the organization, like onboarding should belong to the marketing department. Yep. You know, and to your point, you know, um, and I was just talking about this on Twitter the other day. There's a there's a new um, learning platform that's out, uh, and it was created by you know product managers um, that came over from another cloud technology. But it's a it's a learning platform that, you know, is is already gaining an awful lot of traction. But they're looking at it from a product manager mm -hmm. lens, from that kind of perspective, rather than from a traditional L and D kind of lens, and that's definitely going to give them the edge because they're used to creating something of value that has to be sold to a market. People have to be compelled to use it um, and to, and to, and to buy it. And that's, that's something that has been lacking from traditional L and D. So, so we're being removed in many ways from the middle, from being the gatekeepers of, you know, the ones that have this responsibility for, you know, quote unquote, learning within an organization and certainly training within an organization. And, and we can see that too with disintermediation. We've got a lot of business stakeholders now, right? They've got access to the internet. They've got access to other options. They've got access to other um, workarounds, if you will. And we, we went through this in the IT industry and still go through this in the IT industry. And that is, you know, this idea of what some people call shadow IT, which is, you know, basically your business user goes, well, I'm not going through my centralized, um, you know, IT department because those guys are just going to shut me down. So I'm just going to whip out my American Express card and I'm going to go ahead and call this vendor that I found online and go ahead and get what it is that I need because trying to go through the bureaucracy of the gatekeeper that they perceive the internal IT department to be, um, they're just not going to deal with it. And now they have other options of being able to secure you know, another solution. And we're finding the same thing that's happening in L&D right now. So what eventually is going to happen is, and is happening right now, is as a function, we either learn how to shift the way that we offer value away from what we've traditionally done, which is basically the creation of things and 
connecting people with what we believe has, you know, instructional integrity or is going to help somebody learn something or develop in a particular way? And how do we reassess the value that we can offer the people and the organizations whom we serve and reposition ourselves in the value chain and do it quickly before they march us out, which is happening, um, and do it quickly before they march us out. Because I, I ultimately, we are dematerializing into the operating environment. So it, it, it was interesting when I looked at this post and, and I kind of looked at how many views I did. I had like 10,000 views. And I was like, okay, that's quite, you know, I'm glad that 10,000 people have looked at it, great. But then when I looked at the comments and likes and it wasn't nowhere near that, and I was like, this is really interesting. And actually what it, what it says to me is there's so many people within L&D that sit on the fence with this because it be, they're scared, they're worried, you know, there's a bit of fear in there. And I think to myself, kind of, this is fundamentally the problem. And, and I think part part of things what I think about sometimes at night when I, when I kind of think about this and sit down and go, okay, wh- what's the problem? What's the solution? And you've got one half of the L&D industry, which is predominantly driven by face-to-face. You know, if you've got all your associates, you've got all these people, and they're not going to want to hold their hands up and go, you're right. There's, there's kind of, you know, our need is becoming thinner and thinner by the day they're not going to do that right because it's it's weird it's them what's having you know they're getting paid to do face to face so then you've got this one half who are kind of yeah kind of not open to this change and and kind of don't want it then you've got the other half of the business and you've got these really rare people within really rare companies who are like yeah like my dream job would be to create an, a design function for l&d and i tell you what i won't i'd probably pick all of two or three people out of the l&d function the rest of them i'd go out to other industries so then you've, you've but you've only got a few people who who are looking at this differently and saying actually you know lnd isn't what it is it's it it doesn't it doesn't really necessarily need to be it if lnd was on a bus and it got hit by a bus the business would function the same if not better once you remove lnd and that's hard to say because fundamentally you know i fall within this lnd function i guess to a point but it's just um it's disheartening, I think, and it's disheartening. I think. I mean, you've got these handful of people who, who are doing the face to face and ha- who who are doing the, you know the classroom, and I think that will slowly but surely start to niche down more and more. But then, how do we keep them upskilled for the potential changes which are coming? How do we how do we get them to go from where they are now to kind of being data analytic experts or or being the next kind of insert job title or job role? How how do we do that? How do we take the people who are in this very analog face-to-face and really quickly convert, I guess is probably the wrong word, but quickly convert them to kind of being ready for the next future role so then they don't have to kind of worry. How, how do we get there? Well, there, there's a few different things. And I, I so first, the, the first challenge is kind of going back to like what you're saying about, you know, job function or job role. And I think don't even look at it like that anymore. I, I, I would say start getting used to that the construct of a job and the construct of a role or a function that you perform within a job within L&D is, is going away. Um, quickly, very, very quickly. And that that's why some of these things are so uncomfortable, right? So some people you know, they talk about, um, you know, what's the difference between an instructional designer and a learning experience designer and somebody who designs learning solutions. And there are some, there are some um, lines right now, if you will, in, in that example between those different roles, but they're quickly fading. It's, 
you know, it, it kind of goes back to me, like back in the 1990s, we had, um, we had internet, we had intranet, and we had extranets, right? And then the lines got really, really blurred because things evolved over time. That's basically what's happening with jobs as a construct. Job was a job as a construct that again belonged to the industrial age, that belonged to this, you know, bureaucratic organizational design. I would think more in thinking about the fluidity of what are the what are the skills that I need, me personally as an individual, in order to continue to provide value to the people in the organization that I like to serve, um, and to stay sharp regardless of you know what. Um, you know, what, what the title may be or what the, what the role may be, but how do I stay, you know, whatever our focus is on as a particular area, as a team, how do I make sure that I have the skills that are necessary in order to continue to contribute? And how do I get really, really good at being able to see at different time horizons out, right? So how do I get good at figuring out what do I need to immediately change? What do I need to change within the next 12 months? What do I need to change within the next year to three years? And, and what do I need to what do I need to know about, you know, four plus years out? Or what can I what what if scenarios would serve me to have sort of an idea now so that you can't plan for in this environment, you can't plan for, you know, really more than three years out at this point. But there are some things that we can see that are society, the world, um, the species is definitely trending towards, and we can have some inkling. We may not know, you know, the specifics of it. It's too far out beyond, you know, three years, but, but we have to get good at that. Like we just have to, like, there's, there's just no option. And, and, and that's going to be true of staying in the workforce overall. It doesn't matter if you stay in L&D or exit L&D right now. Um, this, this is a skill that we have to have of being able to figure out how to, in an ongoing basis, disrupt ourselves, um, uh, challenge the way that we see things, challenge our perspective, challenge the way that we do things, figure out new ways of working, how it is that we work with others. And that's, that's, we're just at kind of the beginning of all of that. And that's why things are starting to get a lot more intense within organizations and a lot more uncomfortable is because the old structures and the old constructs are really failing. And so then our ways of work are, are failing and our understanding of work is failing and our understanding of our role and our place in work is, is failing. And I think it's really important for us in L&D that got into it or found ourselves um, falling into it, even if we came into it accidentally, that if the reason why you like it and the reason why it is that you want to stay in, 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 in serving people and serving organizations in this particular way, then that becomes part of your North Star, that becomes part of your log line, right? Um, and so then how do you keep focus on that, right? So, you know, I like to be in service to people, I like to be in service to organizations, you know, having a realization of sort of the fluctuations and the convulsions, if you will, that we're going through right now. And if you see yourselves as being a person that is here to help facilitate that, who's here to help minimize the impact, who's here to help people navigate this, who's here to help, you know, organizations navigate this, who's, you know, again, has a very strong value in, in being in service to 
you know, that you want to be able to help people um, navigate, to be able to continue to make a living, to be able to provide for themselves, to provide for their families, to provide for their communities, to help, you know, people flourish, to help organizations thrive, um, because you see, you know, the greater good in it. That's a big reason to stay in L&D right now. If you're in L&D right now, because you, you know, really like working with e-learning authoring tools and you like creating things and tinkering with things and creating stuff, that's great. But I don't think you're going to make a living at it for much longer. Um, so decide, right? The first thing is, what do you value, right? What's relevant to you? What's going to either keep you in this game or, or get you out of it? Because we're not talking about just the evolution of this isn't, you know, this isn't like going from, you know, um, instructor-led, you know, training in the 1980s to computer-based training. This isn't an evolution. This is a this is a revolution that's being driven by forces that are far greater than an L&D function, and and it's deconstructing everything as we know it, um, and and not just the L&D function itself, but everything everything around us and. And to be able to get the hang of being able to deal with surfing these kinds of changes and and dealing with these you know sort of crises of identity and to de- and to figure out how to get really good at developing skills is going to take a little bit of time and time is a luxury that we do not that we do not have that we do not have so the first thing is again it goes back to kind of that purpose and that log line like what are you in it for what are you doing this for and if those are the things that don't, you know, if none of that, what I just said appeals to you, then you probably want to take a look at doing something else because that's, that's essentially where this game is going to go because it's just going to get trickier from here. And if you don't have a heart for it and don't have passion for it and serving the people and and driving organizational results, then this isn't really, you know, these are not going to be the droids you're looking for. It's not going to be the game. It's not going to be the game that you want to play. And I, there's a little bit of a history lesson in there too. And, and that is, if we go back and look at sort of great leaps in some things that we recognize as professions right now, and I, I mean professions like how, you know, a ministry or a government agency would define a profession, right? It's, you know, it's specialized talent of people that have been educated and have experience in a particular way that they hold a, you know, a specialized qualification or a specialized credential. It's really got nothing to do with the actual qualification or credential, whether that's a degree or a professional certification or a license or what have you. That's just how we govern those types of things. That's how we govern professions. But, but if you think about what separates a profession from an occupation um, is that it's a, it's a standard of quality. It's a standard of care. It's a standard of being able to produce repeatable qualities. So that's that's why we see doctors as being in a profession or see attorneys as being, you know, lawyers as being in a profession or seeing accountants as being in a, in a profession or a CPA, right. And as a, it's a, it's a specialty area. They've been educated in a, in a particular way. They've been formally trained. They've gone through these experiences and they have earned, you know, this, this designation. Well, where did those things come from? right? There's nothing inherent to anything that it is that they do that, you know, there's not some God or the gods from Mount Olympus that came down one day and said, you know, you shall be a profession and these other folks shall Mm -hmm. just be amateurs doing whatever it is that they're doing. (laughs) What happened was, was that there was a crucible of needs. There was a, there was a moment in society where 
um, there was such a such a, a pressure of things that were happening that it forced you know what was once an occupation or or sort of anybody's game in order to evolve or or revolutionize and become this next thing. And so if we go back and look at like the history of medicine and how did medicine become a licensed profession, it was through war. And that's why Western medicine is so very different than Eastern medicine is because the reason why we started having, you know, a medical university in the Western world was to figure out triage, was to figure out how to patch people up that had been injured in war and get them back out to war again. We needed fodder for the cannons, right? We needed to get soldiers back into um, back into the battlefields again. And that's why so much of Western medicine evolved out of this concept of triage, right? It's not about preventative. It's about reactive. It's about patching people up and getting them back out into the field. So, but it came, but, but medicine as a profession and, and snake oil salesmen and people that couldn't perform and couldn't provide value in that kind of way and couldn't actually achieve results of being able to restore another human being back to some level of service again, you know, the bottom kind of fell out of it, right? So you, you had this separation of people that became medical professionals from the people who aren't medical professionals. So people with a special qualification because there was this huge societal need that it, at that particular case was the pressure of war. And we are now in that same crucible when it comes to L&D organizations in order to survive and thrive need to figure out organizational agility and organizational agility is contingent on talent in their workforce being able to be nimble and being able to turn on a dime right being able to you know move you know we were this we're going to do that we did this in the market we serve these people now we're going to do these other things and we're going to serve these other people they have to have that kind of Agility, and I don't just mean the methodology of agile. I mean, you know, the the term agility. They have to be able to be that nimble, that flexible, and that responsive to changing to changing conditions. And so, there's no greater time that people need us, and there's no greater time that organizations need us. Which means that we're gonna we're in the process of going through that same leap of faith. You can either produce the results that help move the organizations and the people forward, or you're going to get out of L&D because you're going to either willfully leave or you're going to be forced out and you're going to go find something else to do. So so kind of who's getting this right then? Maybe maybe it's a business, maybe it's a, a client, you know, as much as you can talk about clients and whatnot, but who's kind of getting this future skill set? if you like, or who, who's kind of looking at this, who's horizon scanning, like what's coming next from, from kind of, you know, maybe it's clients who you've worked with or what, who, who's, who's getting this right? Because I think, you know, it's, it's so easy to kind of go, so many people are getting it wrong, but actually who's, who's getting it right? And who's kind of a benchmarks when it comes to this kind of, this, this, this giant change, what's happening? Uh, the one that I like to, to talk about um, is salesforce.com. And, and for a number of reasons, number one, because they're getting it right. And number two, it's easy for people to go out and take a look at salesforce.com and see specific examples. Um, and the reason why I say salesforce is if you, if you go back and take a look and if you go and take a look at salesforce right now, one of the critical things about them is they actually are one of the first cloud-based you know, companies, right? So they're one of the first cloud-based companies. They went to digital. They 
disrupted themselves, even at the time that they were first initially creating themselves. And they understood that we were moving from economics of tangible and physical goods into digital. Um, and that's a, and the economics of digital are entirely different than physical. So uh, digital, you know, we can have digital assets that, you know, you could have a, a copy of the digital asset. I could have a copy of a digital asset. Other people could have copies of the digital asset. They're, they're mobile. They're not fixed into a particular geographic place. They can transcend time. We can deliver digital assets very quickly. Salesforce was um, amazing even from their early days in being able to see the digital economy and this shift of moving away from physical things to moving towards digital assets. And one of the things that they did back in 2016 was they, they wound up moving to um, a new analytics model. So in 2016 is when they launched what they call Einstein Analytics. And basically what they've done is they've taken their entire operating model, right? So, um, so the, the uh, business model of Salesforce is that they provide um, their customers with uh, a, a platform for being able to track things like sales and client relationship management, right? CRM. And um, it, those are two of the primary focus areas, right? So you can take everything from your marketing campaigns to, you know, your closing rates and being able to see your sales pipeline to being able to keep your contact database, if you will, of, the people in the companies that are in your prospect and you know customer pipelines. And so they've got this whole online platform for that. And what they did with their operating model back in 2016 was they actually changed their entire operating model. They went from a traditional information processing system, an information system, traditional IT, where it processes information to a data science cognitive computing system. They changed their entire operations and their technology architecture and their technology stack to being driven by analytical insights, operations. And what they released with Einstein Analytics back in 2016 to their customer base was it gave customers the ability to start looking at, the customers could start looking at their own data by being able to leverage these increasingly maturing and increasingly becoming more sophisticated um, data analytics tools and data science tools, right? So, um, so they've trained their customers through their own operating model and through their own service order offering how customers can look at their own sales data and start looking at you know, predictive algorithms, start being able to forecast sales, start to be able to figure out insights like, you know, if I've got, you know, prospects that are moving through my, you know, however many steps in my sales pipeline, and I've got, you know, people here, and I want to figure out how to move them to the next step and close more business, you can actually, there's actually recommendations and insights that are baked into the Salesforce offering that help you as an organization who has your um, sales data on here, be able to get that kind of insight and be able to, um, make those kinds of decisions uh, based on um, data. Now, the big thing that they've really changed with that now that they just released 
last year is the next version of Einstein analytics, which is you still have that, you still have that data science, cognitive computing, you can interact with your data um, as an example, right? So I, I can go into Salesforce and I can look at, you know, Owl's Ledge, my company, I can look at sales, you know, this quarter versus this quarter last year. And I can, you know, see in data visualization, basically a, a trend report, right? So I can see a comparison of the two. <laughs> the new thing that they just released at the end of last year or fall of last year is that they've now added conversational query to the Einstein analytics engine which basically means that going back to Alice Sledge, I can look at a sales trend report. I can see what you know sales are for this quarter and what sales are for this quarter last year and see that comparison. But now I can literally speak to the machine and say, Einstein, what's causing that? Wow. Why is that happening? And it'll go back through and act like a little digital data scientist and go back and do that analysis for you and come back, Danny, and tell you why it's happening and what to do about it. So if I see that my sales this quarter as compared to last year are down, it can come back and say, well, you know what, Trish, if you made these three, these three phone calls to these types of clients you know, in this particular area and made this kind of offer, you would get things back on track. That's crazy, but really, but really exciting as well at the same time. Well, and then how much does that cost, right? So how much is Salesforce.com charging a business like me to have that kind of insight and that kind of capability into operations? <sighs> I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even like to guess. I would not even like to guess. $25 US a month. What? Wow. Wow. <laughs> So I want you to think about that. So they've, they've taken their entire operations three years ago, and it, it took them to move from an information processing system, right, a traditional IT architecture, running the typical databases and the typical types of systems, right, just to process information. It took them two years. Um, it cost them billions of dollars, and they give us something like $4 billion, and it was 175 data scientists that they leveraged in order to do it. It was a two-year roadmap to take their internal operational architecture and go from information processing to data science and computer or uh, cognitive computing, right? To, to make that huge shift, to be able to provide these operational insights. And now within the next two years, right? So released, uh, yeah, I think it was September, October of last year is when they now added the conversational query. They added this new interface um, to the Einstein analytics, to that particular engine. And then, of course, think about how much more sophisticated the algorithms and AI and all of that has become since they first released Einstein analytics back in, in uh, 2016, much less you know, now this new user interface on top of it, which completely removes the friction hmm. of people. You know, So you no longer have a sales manager going, well, I wonder what happened there. And maybe we need to go send our whole sales force back to training. They don't have to make those they're not going to make, they're not making those decisions anymore. So my point of that is if we're empowering, right? If we picture a world where people as they work have access in, you know, regardless of whatever their business is and whatever the operating model is, but if their day-to-day -day is a front line that's empowered with not only insights, data-driven insights, but data-driven 
explanations, not only what's happening, but why it's happening, and then specific recommendations on what to do about it. How does that change the entire work experience? And how does that change the demand for L&D services as they traditionally exist today? That's crazy. It starts, it starts, well, <clears throat> I say starts, it's already there, right? It's already starting becoming redundant. It's, it's for, for me, the first thing I'm thinking is, is this starts becoming this very proactive, proactive kind of, and proactive and data-led and kind of uber-focused and uber-personalized uber approach, which is something what L&D as, as a function just cannot do. And, and by the time you even get, you know, within within the you know an inch better than what they are. This kind of this Einstein, it <laughs> I've got smarts because instantly you just start thinking it's it's already redundant, right? I mean, obviously Salesforce is is a is a beast, and and you kind of go, okay, well, is Salesforce the anomaly, and is Salesforce you know the the kind of you know way ahead? But surely you know this. Other organizations can't be that far behind on this, right? So if we think about, so we we see them in other industries. So now if you know what you're looking for, you can see the telltale traces of it. And again, I, I really like to refer to salesforce.com because people can go check it out. You can go look and see what Einstein Analytics is all about and see the service offerings that Salesforce has. And I I want to make sure too, I want to put a pin in this and make sure we come back to Trailhead, which is the training offering that Salesforce has. And I want to talk about that too, because that's really important. But but now, if you recognize sort of those telltale signs of what a company operating at that level with that kind of sophisticated cognitive computing you know, as a core to their operations, that's what's driving Tesla. And that's what's driving, we can start to see that these organizations already exist in other industries. And how, if you are the market leader, if you're the, if you're the first to market with an operations system that's built off the latest data science and cognitive computing, and you have, you have these kinds of superpowers at your disposal, and the roadmap is not unique to Salesforce. It's usually a two-year investment. It does take a significant number of data scientists in order to be able to convert and prepare the historical data, right? So they went back and actually converted all of their operational data going back to Salesforce.com's inception, you know, inception point. But they're also processing they're also processing the data stream activity of real-time data that's coming in. Einstein is, you know, that entire core, that, that, that uh, technology, that architecture is, is processing both the historical data as well as the incoming real-time data in order to be able to provide these kinds of insights, explanations, and recommendations. So if you think about that, if we have one of those, that's the salesforce.com kind of equivalent in every other industry on the planet, what does that do to their competitors? I, I'm just, my mind's just kind of started thinking about this people analytics now. And I'm starting to think, actually, once you, you can start doing that, you can start mapping your organization and the actors within that organization. You can start mapping out, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's probably already done now, but I'm, I'm starting to think, 
you can start easily potentially flagging flight risks and 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 choke points and and yeah sorry uh, sorry Trish my mind just kind of started thinking a little bit blue sky with that but so 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 with Salesforce and I take it they they pay you twenty five uh, sorry you pay twenty five dollars for this service let's just call it a service for now and for you as for you as a user as, as a user of Salesforce if I was to say to you how much would you I mean how much would you pay not knowing you know assuming you're not paying twenty five dollars a month would you would would that service be would you pay more for that service like. I'm trying to. I'm trying to think. Obviously, because of the the business is so far and wide, right? That you know, that the the client the clients must be you know as many. So actually, that's probably the reason why they can drive it to twenty five dollars a month. But I'm starting to think kind of the amount of data and the power and the proactiveness what will come from that and yes, kind of got me thinking there. Trish, sorry, it went off on a tangent. I've lost words. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, but but you're thinking, I mean, I you're thinking about that, you know, what value does that offer, you know, a small business like mine, but you know, Salesforce doesn't all, only power, you know, the Salesforce of a small business like mine. It powers huge, you know, the sales organization of huge, you know, businesses around the world. And if if they're able to operate now with their sales data and have this kind of visibility into their sales pipeline and have um you know, again, this kind of um, not only superpower, but have it in a way where it's at the point of need, right? So it's all the way down to the front line and that person that needs to make that material decision. It's not just reserved for the bureaucracy and the executives, the haves and the have nots. These are insights that are now, because it's so cost effective to go ahead and, and equip and enable your front line with this kind of information. Why would you not do that, right? Because you need, you need them. And again, this goes back to agility and goes back into small teams. And this goes back to being responsive rather than reactive. This goes back to being preventative. It aligns to the entire new model of new organizational design and being able to work in these interconnected teams and being able to come together and fall apart and you know, join this team, you know, contribute to this team, and then you know, roll off of that team and go to the next team and contribute value to the next team. But it it enables as technology should that ability to to be able to operate in that particular way and not only salesforce itself but that is the value that it's providing to its customer base so you've got a number of different things there you know first of all once you've you know once you've put your sales organization as a business onto salesforce what would make you come off of that? You know what I mean? Like mm. what, like what 20, you know, like, is there a competitor that's going to show up and be like, Hey, we'll give you 10% <laughs> off a month. Really? Cause you can't even compare to the value. Do you see what I mean? Like yeah. it so insulates that organization against changing conditions in the marketplace and the competitive landscape as to, as it goes back to Monty Python, is to be absurd, as to be ridiculous. But this is where there are a number of organizations and, and many of the companies that I tend to work with, this is exactly the model that they are 
either at and have already introduced their equivalent within their organization. And some of the savvy ones, what they're starting to do is not only do they get their own operations on this, but they're so far ahead of their competition that they turn around and license parts of this technology to their competitors and create it as an entirely new revenue stream. Wow. Straight up white label. So, wow. so it just changes the entire, it, it changes so many things on so many different levels. And I, I don't want to forget about um, Salesforce and their trailhead platform, because that's also really important. So, so if you're as forward thinking as a Salesforce, you still need, you need people. As a matter of fact, you need a very strong workforce that can help your customers really understand how to leverage this kind of technology, right? So everything from being able to, you know, continue to build the data visualizations to customize those data visualizations to help, you know, onboarding, you know, new customers to a platform like this to clean and prepare their data to normalize their data to get it ready to, you know, um, be usable within this kind of a format. So I mean, there's, you know, within that customer lifecycle and that customer relationship, there's a number of different uh, ways that you know humans. Um, you need a workforce that can handle all of that. And so another way that Salesforce has been really brilliant, which has been similar to how um, some other organizations have come up, like we have TaskRabbit here in the United States. And but basically what they've done is they've done it through community. And so they've created this community and they call it Trailhead. And basically Salesforce um, and, and I've sent this to a lot of people in my life that are looking at what do they want to do next, or they're, they're young people and they're coming out of school and they're kind of, you know, scanning the environment and they're, they're looking for a way to find, you know, how do I make a living and how do I financially insulate myself and do it in a way where I feel like I'm working for the greater good. And I feel like I'm, you know, not just Joe versus the volcano and showing up in the drab office, but I'm, I'm doing something that I enjoy. And, and so they've created this entire community and this entire trailhead platform that allows people for free to upskill themselves and develop themselves with the salesforce.com toolkit. And the last uh, big um, annual uh, Salesforce conference that they had, again, at the end of last year, when they announced um, this conversational query with uh, Einstein Analytics, they also came back and announced, I think it's by 2021, they will have been responsible through this platform and developing people to be able to work with their customers in this way, whether it's you know as an internal employees working for customers or as consultants or part of the gig economy and working <laughs> for customers. It's like 3.2 million jobs. Wow. So what value are you giving back to, you know, as an organization, Salesforce as an organization, are you giving to your customers? Are you giving to your employees? Are you giving to your contractors? Are you giving to your advocates? Are you giving to society? Are you then giving to the world? And I think we're going to see, you know, more and more of this um, as we not only redefine organizational structures and organizational design, but, but what purpose do organizations serve within society as a whole, right? Are they, 
Are they there just to serve profitability? And, and again, this, you know, this delineation between the haves and the have-nots, or is there something more social? Do we have you know, more of an expectation of social responsibility and the care and nurturing and, and the, the active contribution to you know, helping people in society flourish? Like what is the what is the purpose of organize what purpose do organizations serve within the larger context of society? And this is where you get into the work of like Julian Stodd and you know Sea Salt Learning and looking at social social leadership and social organization and social enterprise and this reassessment and reevaluation of what does it mean to work what does it mean to have a business? What does it mean in order to participate in what's really becoming more and more of a, of a global society and we're more and more becoming global citizens, um, regardless of how resistant some of us may be? So it's kind of, I, I had a podcast b- before you and I kind of, one of the questions was about this universal kind of basic in- income. And, yeah. and I was kind of saying, you know, he, his argument was, well, actually, you know, he can't see that working. And I was like, well, I think that's because fundamentally there's a behavioral piece, a massive behavioral piece be- behind that. And actually, you know, especially when the, you've got the fame mongering of AI and, you know, whatever else. Um, but actually kind of just listen to kind of that the Salesforce approach and kind of this upskilling of, of people coming out of school or whatnot, you kind of start thinking, you know, the way the way they're developing that and and kind of giving out to communities because I think one of the first things which jumped to mind when when you told me about Salesforce is how open their kind of forum the forums are. It's like you you can go in and see the community. I think I I was I was using um I think I was on one of their their platforms and it was about kind of their how they get new ideas you know to kind of in house. And we have like mm-hmm. this this innovation kind of thing where it, you can kind of bubble up, you know, new ideas and stuff in the community. Um, but yeah, kind of, I, I, I'll be honest, I need to kind of do more digging on this on Salesforce. But um, this is fascinating for me personally. For me, it's it's really interesting. And take a look at their when you when you get into the community, Danny. Too so so you know definitely get into the organization and the operation of the business and you know sort of those offerings and how it is that they serve their clients. But I think one of the things that you really appreciate by looking at the Trailhead community overall is um, a, a number of different uh, dimensions of it. So one is the design. So they've you know there there are elements of gamification. They've got badging. You can not only go in there and consume content and go through training, but you there are advanced there are career paths, and they're free. And you go in there and you go. There's an entire ecosystem in this community that where the content is available, and it's not just content that's available. It's specific development opportunities. So you know, like let's say that somebody comes in and they're much more technical and they want to learn how to more do more of the data engineering kind of thing and kind of the, you know, what's the architecture and the technology behind, you know, these sources of data for, you know, customers are making it up. And, you know, how do you get that information through API and whatever, you know, pipes you create as a data engineer? How do you exchange information between, you know, wherever the sales information for an organization sits right now, whatever other relevant data they want to have as part of their Salesforce um, 
experience, if you will. You know, how do you actually make those connections and do the exchange of data and so on and so forth? So, you know, very technical or, you know, somebody who likes to do data visualization and create digital dashboards and, you know, even do some traditional reporting and, you know, or, you know, somebody who wants to do an entirely different career path and trailhead and they're really good at the people side and they're really good at helping, you know, now that you've, you know, now that you've got customers that are up on Salesforce and they've got this kind of technical capability and operational capability, what do you do with it? Right. So you've, you know, you now like going back to Owl's Ledge, now I see those trend reports and I see that there's a difference between the numbers that we're making this quarter versus this time last year. And I ask, you know, I don't know what to do next. Well, somebody, you know, how do you help customers understand? Well, now you can ask a question. There's new functionality. You can, you know, okay, great. And now that I have that information, how do I now actually, how does that compel me within my own business now to take some kind of action? So there's all these different um, certification paths. And so they have, you know, this whole like adventure and journey and going on an expedition, you know, kind of um, theme that happens with trailheads. You've got these different trailheads that you can take in order to lead you to these different vistas, which are, of course, these different outcomes. And it's primarily community driven. And if you take a look at the way that Salesforce.com as an organization takes care and honors and recognizes this community, it is... A, it is a lesson in re, in the power of reward and recognition and how to do it well and how to do it right. And I, I think about, I go back and I think about why would you have all these people that volunteer and spend their time and help build these assets and contribute to this community? And I go, well, you know, back in the day in the early 1990s with America Online, there were 7 million of us who acted as volunteers. We were the ones who ran we were the ones who, you know, who monitored the online chat rooms when we first got online chat rooms. We were the ones that, you know, went around and looked for, pure, you know, people that were violating terms of service. You know, we were looking at tossing trolls. We were, we were the ones that um, organized, you know, online libraries for the first time. But we, we did it as, you know, there was, there was incentive in the more that I traded my time and volunteered my time on the AOL platform at that time, then I got access to the service for free. Cause back then it was like $6 and 95 cents, I think an hour or something like that, which was very expensive if you were on there all the time. <laughs> um, I'm just saying, but, uh, but you could get, you know, so if you worked an hour, you'd get two hours banked or, you know, something along those lines. But it still wasn't enough in um, compensation to necessarily warrant the amount of time that people spent in volunteering. It's the same kind of thing on Salesforce. You're talking about intrinsic, right? You're not talking about extrinsic motivation. There's there's some extrinsic incentives there. And, and Dan Pink's another one that I, I really love to um, look at for you know the difference between extrinsic and intrinsic motivation and looking at work that he's done, like, especially in his book, Drive, and, you know, and having an understanding, but how do you incentivize? How do you get this community to come together? And how do you reward and recognize them for exuding the values that you as an organization hold true that, that in turn, then keep this community together and continue to grow and expand the community? And, you know, ultimately, again, it's like, again, 3.2 million jobs. That's, that's, in, that's incredible. It's a brave new world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think it becomes down to that mindset, right? You either fear it or you embrace it. 
and you welcome it with, with open arms. And I think stuff like this, I'm kind of open arms, give it to me, I need more. Um, but I can see where, where the, you know, the fear aspect comes through and, you know, right, whether it's right or wrong, you know, there's still fear of that. But I kind of, I guess kind of going to a bit of a quick fire round here with Trish, if you can. So sure. these questions can be light, they can be as deep as you want to go with them. And be, I call it quick fire round, but it doesn't need to be. So obviously, you know, when we when we go into this kind of corporate environment, we're, we're told to be our best selves. And when we're interviewed, we're talking about all the great work we've done. And I think actually the better question we should be asking is what does your failure resume look like? What's, you know, what what failures have you had and what's the lessons learned from them? So if I was to ask you kind of what would your failure resume look like? What's the kind of the one thing what jumps out to you? Wow, my failure resume. I, I don't I don't really think of things in terms like that. I guess I'm more kind of curious and more of the experimenting type. Yeah. I mean, I've had... I mean, I've done some, you know, really stupid stuff at a client site that I, you know, like, and I don't mean like practice. I mean, like, you know, there was a moment in time where I accidentally erased something or, and then, you know, had to figure out how to take my hat in hand and go talk to, you know, my, my contact and my sponsor and say, Hey, you know, <laughs> I just accidentally, you know, erased the entire network drive that we were referencing for these templates and stuff. And, and I'll never forget his response in that particular way was, well, that's why we have backups, Trish. And I was like, oh, my God. Um, <laughs> but I think those are the, I think those are the, it's, and I was there through the IT department and I was there as a technical resource and a very well-paid technical resource. And here I was, you know, right off the bat, diluting, accidentally diluting this, you know, shared network drive. I think it's having that kind of, um, I think it's those types of failures where you do screw up in some kind of way and, and it's having the humility, number one, to come forward with it. Um, and number two, to try and remain flexible with it. And what I mean by that is I certainly was upset with myself, but I wasn't so upset with myself that it shut me down from preventing me from being able to perform. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think you know, and we can go into the whole Brene Brown and shame, um, which I think is huge. So you can either stand there and, and screw up and shame yourself mercilessly and continue to screw up, or you can kind of figure out and go, okay, well, I'm, I'm human and kind of move on with things. Um, I've also done quite a bit of work uh, in the Middle East. I've done quite a bit of work in Saudi. And I remember, uh, and I'm going to say a word. It's not a bad, it's not a, it's not a bad word in the Western in the Western world, but I'm going to say a word, and I'm going to apologize to any of my Middle East uh, peers right now. But I um, so I was facilitating a, a workshop, and I had I was in I was in Saudi, I was in the Eastern Province, and I had a mix of men and women in the room. And um, uh, going back to Lou Russell, as a matter of fact, out of Indianapolis. And, and Lou, in teaching project management, there's a mnemonic that she uses in order to teach um, business. Like, you know, what, why do organizations invest in any kind of um, project? And if we are mindful as project stewards, as project managers of this, if we understand why they've made this investment, then we can help 
shepherd or navigate or guide a particular project within the constraints that matter the most to the organization and to the sponsor. And so she talks about she talks about the goddess of business objectives and she uses a mnemonic. It's I-R-A-C-I-S. So I-R, um, so organizations either are looking at increasing revenue, I-R, AC, avoiding cost, or IS, improving service. And so she talks about the business goddess Irasis, and there's a, you know, slide in the deck that has sort of this like, you know, Roman goddess, you know, sort of thing and so on and so forth. And I, again, was in Saudi Arabia and I had a young uh, Muslim man who very politely said to me, we don't talk about that. That's, there's no such thing as a goddess. You can't use that word here. Um, that's not how it is that we would, you know, have any kind of conversation about Allah. And there's that moment as a facilitator where on the one hand, standing in that moment, and again, embarrassment, right? Like I could have allowed the embarrassment to consume me and could have shut down. I could have behaved in a way to shut him down. I could have embarrassed myself further within that you know, within that, within that moment. Um, and so, and, and, you know, my reaction to that was many things. And one thing was, oh my goodness, I've had this, you know, I've committed this horrible offense and now I want to fix it. And I could have, you know, that's, that's the other side of that pendulum too, is like over apologizing. And it was like, okay, well, you know, in that split second, like control yourself, <laughs> you know, and you know how sometimes Danny, you talk to yourself and you're like, control your face, Trisha Marie. Like, <laughs> you, need to, you need to just like watch your body language here for a moment here and, and, and give it pause and, and give it a moment and give it, you know, give it some open space. And so, you know, how do you apologize and how do you move on from there? And, and again, it goes back to, um, and those things are those things are difficult, and they're learned from experience. And sometimes, um, you know, as they say, experience is the best is the best teacher. And and I am certainly of the human ilk, where sometimes one experience isn't necessarily enough. Sometimes I need multiples. In that case, one experience was enough. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, so kind of next my question, I guess, is kind of if if and actually this could be two because. Obviously, it's you, Trish, and you're special. So, first one. If you used to give a gift as a book to five people, what book would that be? And this book could be something what shapes you really personal or a book where you think everybody should read this. And I guess the follow-up question is the same question, but in a professional sense of kind of moving towards everything what we talked about with regards to Salesforce and understanding data and analytics analytics and whatnot so it's a two two pack question i guess yeah so the first one the book is really 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 easy because i actually have a stack of them in the closet behind me um the first book is called giraffes giraffes okay it's um <laughs> a very ornate looking book it's one of those where it's um kind of like oversized and there's a very um colorful photo of a giraffe on the front of it and it's very very sparkly and it's the book is very 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 official looking and when you as a matter of fact when you open it up the um forward and the opening is all about these scientists and it's very formal and very um you know in their in their official like lab coats and a lab and there's this photo and it's you know very official and then you start to read the book 
and it talks about how giraffes got here on an intergalactic. We, you said we could talk about aliens. That um, giraffes got here on an intergalactic escalator, and that um, the reason why they're so tall is because their legs are full of fruit juice. And <laughs> and it, and again, it's this very ornate, very serious-looking, formal-looking book. And then you start to read it, and of course, it's just full of nonsense. And I have given that to you know everybody from children in my life that turn a, a certain age to. Um, to adults at dinner parties, it, it's become the thing that I'll give, especially, at, and I've been to some really interesting dinner parties where it's somebody who's got kind of like everything. And it's like, what do you get somebody who's got everything? And my answer to that is giraffes, giraffes. You <laughs> absolutely give them giraffes, giraffes, because again, it's sort of that thing that kind of sets people off kilter and, and gives that mo moment of pause. And I would say the majority of the people that I've given that book to have laughed, except for one very, very serious 10 year old, but she's older now and she's okay. <laughs> I haven't scarred her too badly for life. Wow, okay, I will, I will, I'll definitely check that out. I've never heard of that at all. So that sounds, that sounds awesome to be honest. There's a, there's, there are a, a couple of books in the series and the, the other one, one of the other ones is called The Fluids in Your Head. You'll enjoy the series, Danny. I, I just have that. I think um, Jamie would probably agree that one of the reasons why you and I can relate to each other is that you'll enjoy that series of books. Sounds awesome. I'm going to get that on my list for sure. So, so I guess kind of in, in a, in a professional context and kind of what, what, what one would you, would you recommend for, you know, people wanting to kind of get ahead or get a better understanding of and, and maybe maybe this book is maybe it's for someone who's been in the industry or someone who's kind of coming into it and they look at say you Trish and they go I want to be the next Trish I want to know everything what she knows and I want to get there as fast as possible what's the first book you recommend everyone should do on that journey uh well I don't know if that should be the end goal, but I think the end goal is that people need to have, we, we need to not only have a better understanding of what's happening, we need to also, um, you know, the very American baseball phrase would be get a mitt and get in the game. Um, and, you know, there's all this conversation about artificial intelligence. There's all this conversation about blockchain. There's all this conversation about you know, not only the deconstruction of what's happening within the world of work, but also within society and you know, we've got the largest, you know, human migration patterns that are happening right now. We've got, you know, 6 million people a day that are moving into urban areas. We've got the rise of smart cities and mega cities. Mm -hmm. We've got, you know, here in the United States, we've been used to being the largest consumer and retail economy on the planet. China has now, you know, surpassed us. How does that change our influence in the world? How does that change their influence in the world? I mean, so there are all these drivers and all these forces that are happening and and i think especially around the technology and the concern about you know are we going to master the technology or be mastered by the technology and i think the only way to answer that question is to contribute to the conversation um and there's no excuse for a human on this planet um, that has awareness of these technologies that are coming in to not get involved in those types of you know conversations about what the impact is going to be to us what the impact is going to be to our kids what the impact is going to be to future generations and what what do we want it to be and how do we want to shape it so 
Um, so one of the books that I would highly recommend, you know, right now in getting on that path and having an understanding is called Prediction Machines. And Prediction Machines really breaks down the, the de of the, and I like the word deconstruction better than disruption for a number of reasons, but one is because we get so, we're, we're almost now at a point where we tune out the world, the word disruption. Um, but deconstruction, I think, is more accurate because it's the dismantling of something, right? And, and to deconstruct something may also assume that something's going to get reconstructed again, and that's exactly what's happening, right? So we're tearing down these old constructs, and we're building these new constructs, and we all get to have a voice and participate in this process. And Prediction Machines talks about AI technology specifically, but its impact, not just on the world of work, but on society as a whole, and exactly where we as people can learn how to leverage the technology and, and where it is, you know, what are our strengths and its weaknesses and what is AI's strengths and our weaknesses and how do we, how do we look at this human plus machine sort of paradigm and, and figure that piece out? Okay, okay. Prediction machine. That sounds awesome. I, I I don't normally do this, but I kind of wanted to tell you two books. Um, so the first one is called A Pattern Language. Um, and the second one is more, much, much newer. It's called Everybody Lies. Um, yeah, second one's about a, a, a data engineer who worked at Google and talks about predictions, how he could predict horse races and champion horse races due to data analytics. Um, and A Pattern Language is about the language of buildings and villages and, and kind of things like why ceilings, low ceilings make you feel claustrophobic and the pattern language of the interactions between buildings, villages and cities. Um, and it's kind of just got me thinking about, you know, when we, when you kind of touch upon smart cities and whatnot. Um, so yeah, it's an old, it's a, it's an old book. Um, if you can get hold of the original copy, definitely do it because the book's quite nice. Um, but yeah, uh, definitely check that out i think you might i think oh, you I might love enjoy it. that's fantastic yeah thank you okay so so billboard question this is kind of one of my favorite ones but you've got a million people coming out of a stadium and you have a billboard what a million people are going to see what's the message you would put on that billboard surrender okay okay <laughs> surrender Okay. Do you want to elaborate on that one, Trish? That's, I mean, that's that's a good, it's a good word. So, so to, do you want to elaborate, or do you want to just keep it there? There's a there's a double entendre there, right? Or potentially, there's a you know, there's so many different meanings to that word, and I think um, this goes back into you know, having an awareness of what's happening in and around us, you know, so happening in, again, all these different contexts and these different systems, these different environments that we move through and then also our own internal state. And, and surrender doesn't mean to give up. Surrender means to receive and give into, right? So how do we, you know, even the most A-type personalities of us who are strong and identify as strong and identify as, you know, again, 
you know, we have these certain things about ourselves that we hold dear. But how do we, even for those of us who consider ourselves to be champions of a cause or fighters or, you know, being able to, in some ways, bully our way through some things, right? Like if I just kind of, you know, duck my head and throw my shoulders into it, um, I can go ahead and, you know, just kind of plow my way through. There's a simplicity to surrender and learning the letting go of things and learning when it makes sense to yield versus, you know, feeling like we're, like we're giving in or, you know, just laying our weapons down. But how do we, how do we know when it's in our best interest and in the best interest of the other people that we hold dear to, to kind of go with the flow, to surrender? And, and stand down, I guess that's the, I guess it's, you know, and we can stand down from our ego, we can stand down from our principles, we can stand down from who we thought we were, we can stand down for who we think we're supposed to be. We can stand down from who we think other people are supposed to be. So some of these entrenched mindsets and mental models, how do we, how do we learn how to surrender? How do we learn how to give ourselves over to something greater than, greater than just us? So, yeah, Trish, so, you know, do you even love yourself i mean you say love we can say like but yeah take it take it however you like with that one i think Danny, i think it has to be both i think it has to be both of those things and i and i i also don't want to i so first of all yes i like myself and i love myself and we'll go into a little bit more of that in a moment but i but i also want to make it a safe space in this podcast to say to others that if that's not how you're currently feeling about yourself, you know, the world is not going to come to an end, right? Like there's, there's a way out of that. There's a way out of that um, negative feedback loop, if you will. I think it's important for us to evolve and have an understanding that we as humans you know are always in a state of flux and progress there's no you know achievement of perfection which means that there are you know there are times that i'm certainly frustrated with myself there are certainly times that you know there there's i'm i'm even angry with myself but to like myself and to love myself is of critical importance. And I think the way to achieve that is by having a level of awareness of what are the aspects about myself. If I'm going to get angry about my, you know, if I'm going to get angry with myself about something, what is it that I'm angry about? What behavior or what mental model or what negative thinking pattern or what is it that I'm angry about? I'm not angry just with Trish. I'm angry about something that Trish is doing or thinking or saying or, you know, or has you know, done one of these things. Well, then, great. Now, what am I going to do about it? Right? So, um, and, and this is where, you know, we've had this kind of constant theme of identity and fluidity and, you know, 
um, this evolution of self throughout this entire recording, I get a lot of people in my coaching programs that ask me like, at what point do I have to change, right? Like at what point do, you know, there might be some aspect about myself that every once in a while, maybe it frustrates me or it causes frustration in some of the situations that I'm in, but that's me, right? Like I, I own that, like that's who I am and that's how I am. And I like that about myself. Well, then great. If that still serves you, then hang on to it, right? If that, if you feel like that thing or that aspect of you or that behavior or that attitude or that way of thinking or that perspective is something that still really serves you, then hang on to it. But if it's no longer, if it's a hindrance to getting what it is that you want, you know, whether that thing that you want is some level of achievement or it's a job or a promotion or it's a family or a date or it's, you know, some kind of level of love and connection or, you know, it's getting along with your teammates or your workmates or your spouse or your kids or other family or whatever it is. If that aspect of yourself or that, again, way of thinking no longer serves you because it's getting in the way of, you know, these other things that are of value to you, then, you know, it's time to consider that that idea of surrender, of that idea of letting go, of, of letting that thing go and, and allowing and allowing your perception of self, allowing our perception of self in order to, in order to change. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think we need to get good at that sort of sorting process, right? What, what things about me do I want to keep? What things about me am I working on letting go of because they no longer serve because they're holding me up? And if we're doing that, then I think that there's an element of, then, then a byproduct of that is liking ourselves and a byproduct of that is loving ourselves. And that's important because if we don't love ourselves and don't like ourselves, then how, how could we expect anybody else to? And that's, that's tough to move through the world that way. What about you, Danny? I, and I, what about you?